Our scripture reading today comes from John 6, 14 through 22. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, then started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, good morning. And uh, if I've not had the joy of meeting you, I'm Tom. And uh, it's such a delight to have you with us. Uh, may you sense uh, Jesus' presence with us. And uh, I hope you're doing well. Again, happy Father's Day, uh, as uh, Pastor Andrew's already expressed that. Well, storms can be very frightening, can't they? Uh, I heard, I was actually out of town, but I heard many of you in Kansas City, if you were in Kansas City, spent a little bit of a frightful evening in your basement. <laughs> I know my, my wife did with our dog Harley uh, as a tornado was near us, so I hope you uh, got over that. But I, I was out of town, but, I, but, I've, but I've had a lot of scary storms. I have to, can I tell you one of my most scary storms? You, 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 you bear with me for a moment. It actually took place on, at 14,011 feet. Uh, my brother and I, several years, were climbing Mount Holy Cross in Colorado, and I love doing that, and uh, we had climbed other mountains. If you know, when you climb the mountains, uh, you uh, are very careful not to climb them in the afternoon, especially at the summit and all the boulder fields, because afternoon storms, it's not uncommon to come in. So we got up, I mean, like darkness, the last leg of the hike for several hours. It was a crystal clear blue morning. A Colorado summer day, right? The sky was perfect. The wind was still, and we made our way to the summit. Like, you were at 14,000 feet. It's awesome. We wanted to stay there. I mean, I just wanted to soak this in, but it was only 10 or 15 minutes after we got on top of the summit that this amazing storm came in mid-morning. It was like it was on us all of a sudden, like whoosh, and we had to get out of there, Right? So we scampered down the boulder fields. If you've hiked, you know there's a long ways to go and you are exposed. And I have to tell you that the wind just blew gale force at 14,000 feet. The rain pelted us like it hurt. But the scary thing was we could see lightning flashing around us. I don't know if you've ever been in something like that. I, I don't think I ever remember being more scared. I was scared spitless. Well, obviously I survived, right? I'm standing here. But I don't know if you've ever encountered an intense storm that really scared you, but I have. 
Now, whatever the storm you have faced, I have to suggest that storms have at least one thing in common, right? Like lightning and thunder, fear and storms go hand in hand. And that is true of physical storms, but of course, it's also true in all of our lives in terms of life storms. Uh, you may have faced some intense life storms, right? Like that sudden surprising, surprising, scary diagnosis from your physician or a relationship meltdown with a family member or a longtime friend. You may have or experienced the storm of a massively disruptive change in your financial situation. I know many with the bear market, it's like the old days, 401ks go to 201ks in a heartbeat, right? Or maybe there's an entrepreneurial endeavor you put so much energy and time and it's in a free fall of failure. See, we all face fearful storms and we are also living, y'all, in a culture, a time where we are experiencing incredible fear. Perhaps more than any humans in history. What do I mean by that? Well, today, on a global level, fear of every imaginable stripe, every imaginable kind, is fanned 24-7 in a nanosecond social media, internet, digitized world. In his insightful book, Rejoice and Tremble, Michael Reeves points to the paradox that we experience in our cultural moment embedded in our fearful culture. He writes this. I like this. There is an extraordinary paradox, for we are living more safely than ever before, more than our shorter-lived ancestors could ever have imagined, protected like never before, yet we are skittish and panicky like never before. Michael Reeves raised the question, how can this be? Now, answering that question is a complex dynamic, and I don't want to really go there for time this morning, but let me just simply say, it's very hard to escape the very palpable cultural fear of our times. Nor is it possible to escape the fearful storms that come into our life, often unannounced. So the question for us this morning is how can we experience heartfelt peace in the midst of our fearful culture, our fearful times, and in the midst of life's fearful storms? This is where our text takes us this morning. And our text helps us to answer in compelling ways this deeply heartfelt existential question we face in our time and in our daily lives. Okay, so if you have a Bible, I hope you do, Paper or electronic, turn with me to the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we are in a series that Marvin Daniels began last week for us here at the Leva campus, uh, entitled Signs, as we continue our way this year through the Gospel of John. Now, some of you know this, but I want to uh, set the stage a bit because one of the most prominent literary features of the Gospel of John is its enragement around seven signs, Okay. But the signs are designed not just to say, look what Jesus did, okay? It is to point to who Jesus is and why that's so important for our lives, okay? Who Jesus is. 
Now, also, you might be aware of this, but I do not want anyone to miss this as you are thoughtful listeners of the biblical text. John's literary purpose, his big why, is explicitly listed. It's very unusual in the biblical text. Usually there's an illusion. This is explicit. And it's found in the end of his gospel. And John tells us exactly why he wrote it. And his purpose is threaded through the entire inspired text from beginning to end. He says this. This is why I'm writing this book to the world, literally. And that's why a Jewish John translates it, writes it in Koine Greek. Okay? So, here he says, So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, John 20, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is why scholars of John, Johannian scholars and Christians throughout the centuries, have referred to this gospel as the gospel of belief. Because this is the primary persuasive aim that is, again, threaded through the entire gospel. So, here in John 6, then, John, who became literally Jesus' closest earthly friend. John tells us this, not in a self-aggrandizing way, but in a literary way. He is his closest disciple. He is an eyewitness to what he is going to describe for us as what had to be, y'all, his, well, at least one of his most unforgettable days of his life. So let's enter into the text. John 6 begins in verses 1 through 13, and John describes Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000. We heard last week, when you look at all the children and women, this is actually 20,000 at least, and Jesus does this. Can you imagine this? With one little boy's lunchbox, right? That's the picture. Five loaves and two fish. <laughs> this is one of Jesus' all-star miracles. And this is why, in the providence of God and the inspiration of the Spirit, all four gospel writers include the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But notice John describes the response of the well-fed people in verses 14 to 15. Here's where we begin. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. Notice the prophet, the picture of the Messiah, who has come into the world. So perceiving them, John writes, that they were about to come and take him king. Literally, the text is by force. Grab him with their hands is the idea, by force. To make him king, notice, Jesus withdraws again to the mountain by himself. Now, it's not surprising that the well-fed crowd is really excited to crown Jesus king, right? The idea here, the context, the framing of their Jewish mind in the first temple period is the sense that if Jesus, this, this Jesus they're waiting for, this Messiah, if he can take five loaves and two fishes and feed thousands of people, he certainly can throw off the shackles, the suffocating shackles of Rome. That's the big idea undermining this. But what is surprising, y'all, is Jesus' response. This is where John goes. Jesus resists the growing appeal of popularity and he quickly, this is it, he quickly exits to a remote place to embrace two spiritual disciplines, solitude and prayer. Now, for those of you who have read the biblical text a lot, or you're newer to the text, John now begins to give us literary allusions of other texts. 
Jesus praying in the wilderness on the mountain should prompt our thoughts to the Gospel of Matthew describing Jesus' other wilderness experience where he faced satanic temptation to abandon his mission. Okay? So, if you remember, Matthew says at the early part of Jesus' ministry that Jesus is tempted to demonstrate his awesome power to the world to do a mission without the cross. Jesus knows, now John now knows, his earth, Jesus' earthly mission is to be the crucified king. Hold on to that. In other words, Jesus won't be king without the cross. John is building to this in his story. So as Jesus embraces solitude, evening approaches. Come into the story now. Bring, bring your sandals into the first century. Okay, come with me. Jesus' disciples get in a boat. And they go ahead of Jesus to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. You have to wonder, as thoughtful readers, what was going through their minds and hearts as they entered that boat. They had just experienced one of the most amazing days of their life. Jesus did one of the most jaw-dropping miracles. I mean, they'd seen others, but like this takes the cake. Now, as Jewish men who were steeped in Torah, their minds had to be musing on what was going on in front of their eyes. You remember, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob miraculously provided for a massive multitude manna from heaven. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? So here, the messianic expectation begins to fuel their hope. They make the connection, and it ignited their joy in their hearts. This clearly was one of the most mountaintop moments of their life as they connected the dots. But after a mountaintop, isn't that true? Often, what's next? A valley. So now we're entering in, in the story, to a really dark value, an un, or valley. An unforgettable day becomes an unforgettable night. They have no idea what awaits them. Now, the story picks up here. John, again, who is in the boat, describes how suddenly, how ferociously a storm hit. Now, let's remember several of Jesus' disciples grew up on this body of water that was 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. It's a beautiful place. This is not a Kansas pond. Nothing wrong with a Kansas pond, right? So just picture this. Enter into the story. So John wants. These guys, most of them, not all of them, most of them are seasoned fishermen. In that time, as commercial fishermen, they fished at night. They were used to navigating this body of water at night. They knew this body of water and the weather like the back of their hands. Do not miss that. Matthew tells us there's another dynamic going on. Remember, they got in the boat as the evening is beginning. Hmm. And he tells us that it is now the fourth watch, which is a Roman use of time. We would say 3 to 6 a.m. It's the darkest time of the night. Plus, these guys have been rowing against the wind, and they're not making progress, okay? So this is, there's a lot going on here. Now, the storm hits. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're far from the western shore. They're struggling to row against these incredible gale force winds and the menacing waves. They're making little progress. They're exhausted. 
and the storm is getting increasingly intense. So even for seasoned fishermen, okay, this is important to understand, the storm evokes increasing fear in their hearts, like we may not make it out of this. That's where they are. But a greater fear lurks around the corner they're not ready for. Imagine in the midst of these roaring waves, the strong winds, and a deepened darkness, there is this silhouetted figure <laughs> that can be seen walking on the sea toward them. The gospel writer Matthew <laughs> picks up on this, the good old tax collector Matthew. He's terrified along with the rest, and he sees it as a supernatural apparition. These grown seasoned men cry out, it's a ghost, So Matthew says. Now, I don't know if you have ever had the experience of encountering a real sense of something supernatural and deeply evil. Okay? I mean, it can be both, but often a sense of evil, but a supernatural presence. It is both frightful and unforgettable if you do. Let me say, I've not talked about this much, but I've only had two experiences in my life that really stand out here. Let me tell you one of them, briefly. One of those times was in the early years of Christ's community when we as a church family were planting a sister church in Cotea de Argis, Romania, near the Carpathian Mountains. I was there with a team from Christ's community, and on a crystal clear starry night, I remember it like it was yesterday, I was invited by one of our translators to go to the home of a famous Romanian poet that she knew and wanted me to meet, and I was looking forward to that. I'll never forget we entered the small courtyard of his house, and the minute I walked through that gate, I could feel the hair on my skin stand up. At that moment, I felt this crushing weight on my chest. I looked, and my eyes told me no one was there. There was nothing visible to my eyes of this presence. And even though it was a perfectly clear night, the courtyard was filled with a haunting fog just the courtyard. There was a sense of, all I can say is demonic darkness that filled the air. All I wanted to do, if you've ever been in those contexts, is to get out of there. I won't tell you all the story, but I later learned that this Romanian poet was deeply involved in the occult. And then things began to click for me after that that I had walked into a very dense and active and saturated demonic realm. Now, you, as I share this story, you may find yourself very skeptical. I don't know. You may dismiss it as, boy, Tom has a product of a, is a, product of a very fertile imagination. And in our cultural context, I get that. You may be also, as you read John's Gospel, skeptical of Jesus' miraculous work. I get that too. In some ways, 
each of us, because this is the water we swim in. This is the air we breathe culturally. We are a people of our times, friends. And one of the most glaring characteristics of our increasingly secular times is what Professor Charles Taylor, in his brilliant work, A Secular Age, has called the imminent frame. The imminent frame. Taylor observes that this imminent frame informs and shapes our perception of reality on a moment by moment and daily basis. It restricts us to believe that the only thing, and believing the only thing that is really real is the material world here and now. In other words, any divine being or spirit or any non-material reality or supernatural or anything ultimately transcendent is dogmatically, certainly, and immediately dismissed as mere wishful, imaginative, hocus-pocus. But I think it's fair to say that much of our contemporary skepticism is fueled and fanned, not primarily by an inadequate pointing of evidence of the non-material world. It is much more our presuppositional starting point, one again that immediately and dogmatically dismisses any possibility of the supernatural. Andrew Claven uh, has written a recent book. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a winning writer and screenwriter. Much of his life he rejected faith in Jesus. But he has now come to faith in Jesus, and he makes this very salient point in his new book entitled The Truth and Beauty. Here's what he says. I think he's insightful like Lewis of his time. He says, it's not the miracles we don't believe in. It's the source of the miracles. It is the immaterial God of creation we cannot allow into our material mindset. Now, wherever you are this morning in your faith journey, let me simply say there are times we all have our doubts. That's part of the human experience in our finite understanding of everything. Right? And if you doubt your Christian faith, okay. But let me ask, are you willing to doubt your doubts about the Christian faith? And let me encourage you to stay curious wherever you are and keep an open mind as we explore John's gospel. I am telling you that John will shatter your imminent frame. <laughs> Completely shatter it. And he will mess up your life in a good way. I promise. Well, as much as I can promise. Because John lived in a different world. And like Andrew Claven. You may be very surprised, I don't know where you are in your faith journey, how blinding, unsatisfying, and devoid of meaning and suffocating this imminent frame could really be. John lived not in a God-absent world. John was immersed in a God-based world. And he is a credible eyewitness. He doesn't try to defend his story in its truthfulness or veracity. You notice that in the entire gospel. He just says, I was an eyewitness. I was there. <laughs> Jesus walked on the sea as he's done all these other miracles. And notice, as you read the story here, at first they didn't know it's Jesus, and they're scared spitless. I get that. I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of a scaredy cat. Can, can I just, some of you are just like not as fearful. I'm, I'm particularly fearful of movies. Even I, though I know they're movies, like Alien, I just couldn't handle Alien. Some of you can just look at that and enjoy it and have fun. I'm freaking out. I know it's a movie, but I'm scared. And... 
unlike many of my wonderful family members, I have not yet seen the new Jurassic Park movie. I'm not sure I'm ready for it. <laughs> just saying because watching people eat, you know, dinosaurs eat people just ruins my sleep. Okay. Just want you to know that. But here, imagine being on that sea with those disciples and, and, and experiencing this. You, my hunches, you'd be pretty scared too. I would be. But you know what happens next in verse 20? Four words in the original Greek that change everything. Verse 20 is the hinge of the story. Look with me. But he, Jesus said to them, it is I do not be afraid. Now, English hurts us here. It does its best grammatically, but it can't get it. Okay, so let me just unpack it. Remember, John is Jewish. He translates this into common Koine Greek. In the Greek language, what John says Jesus said is, ego imi, I am. Hmm. So if you have heard that before somewhere in the Bible, you know that Jesus is making a connection immediately in the midst of their terrifying fear. We translate it as I, but I am is what the text says. And, you know, good scholars want to be correct with English. Okay. It is a connection to Exodus 3. And when the one true God identified himself in the burning bush moment, God says, I am. So what's going on in these Jewish men's lives and hearts as they hear this? John's literary illusion is almost palpable. It's like, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And don't miss this. You ready? John says, the God who parted the Red Sea is now walking on it. Wow. Gives me goosebumps just talking like that. And you'll notice... They understand this is the very incarnation of God in the flesh. In fact, John's literary brilliance is stunning here. The first I am statement in the book of John is right here. Anchored in Exodus 3. Okay, I need to move on. It's too fun. Okay. But there's also in this text an allusion to Genesis chapter 1. It hovers over the text. In Genesis chapter 1, remember, the Spirit hovers over the chaos and brings creation out of chaos by God's spoken word. Let's remember how John opened this gospel. He connects it directly to Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does John begin his gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Amen? Do you see the connection? Jesus' words, I am are clearly impregnated with great theological significance. They are a microburst of truth. But they are also, do not miss this, they are brimming with relational importance for your life and mine today. It's not just that Jesus is the creator, omnipotent, eternal God of the universe. Awesome, right? He is Lord over all chaos, including our world, our nation, and our lives. What a comfort that is. But Jesus is the loving and attentive, omnipresent God who is always with us even in the midst of chaos. Jesus is saying to his fearful disciples, even when you are not expecting me, I'm there. I'm right here with you. I'm right here for you. You are not alone. You are never, never, never alone. Jesus' attentive presence is all over this text. 
His attentive presence in your life and mine. Why, why we do not need to be paralyzed by fear no matter what we're facing today or tomorrow. As followers of Jesus, even in the midst of our greatest fears, our most fierce storms, in the deepest valleys of our pain, our great loss, in our grief and doubt, we are never, never, never alone. Let's pause for a moment. Let's remember that John, who is in that boat with Jesus now, on that dark night in the storm, is now an elderly man. He writes this some 60 years later. I think the best scholar of this verse is the 20th century scholar William Barclay. He brilliantly captures the moment. I'm going to give you just an appetizer, okay? He says this, and this every time John thought of it, he could feel that night again. Love his language. The gray silver of the moonlight, the rough oar against his hand, the flapping sail, the shriek of the wind, and the sound of the surging water. The astonishing, unexpected appearance of Jesus. The sound of his voice across the waves and the crunch of the boat as it reached the Galilean side. What an unforgettable day it was. And in the midst of that, there is a life-transforming truth that John wants to communicate across the sands of time to you and me this morning and to our local church community. I so want this for our church family, for you individually to wrap it around your heart and mind in the times we live. What is that comforting truth? It is this. Even in my worst fears, Jesus is with me. Reflect on that for a moment. What fear or fears are you facing this morning? What fearful thoughts is, are robbing your sleep? What fear is greeting you in the morning as you enter your Monday world of where you live, where you work, where you play, where you serve Him? I know many of us, because I chat with many in our congregation about how fearful they feel right now in different ways, in their workplaces, their families, our nation, our neighborhoods, our world. So I'm going to ask you to do something I don't normally do, but I just think we need to hear each other say this, okay? And I'd like you just to repeat after me this truth, just out loud, okay? Would you do that with me right now? Even in my worst fears, Jesus is with me. And let's not forget, as a church family, Jesus is with us, right? We have been given the Spirit as the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, to indwell individually and collectively in our lives. No matter the fierceness of the storm we face, we are never, never alone. The disciples never expected Jesus to show up in the chaos and the storm they encountered. But they learned a truth that we need to learn. We are never outside of our triune God's reach or His attentive care. Never. Jesus is closer than the churning chaos in your life. No matter the storm, we are never alone. 
fascinating gospel writer, Matthew, describes, you might remember this, Peter walking on the water. You know, not only Jesus walked, but Peter wants to be a water walker too. Fascinating story. But Jesus reaches out to Peter. Don't, don't forget that. His eyes are on Peter when Peter begins to sink. And there's Jesus grabbing him. Peter learned what we all need to learn, that the one who walks on the water will never let him down. They will, he will never let him go. No matter what and how deeply we feel we're sinking. Whether it's doubt or despair or discouragement or fear. The disciples were just simply not expecting Jesus to show up in the middle of the dark night out in that tumultuous sea. When Jesus headed for the hills, they got in the boat. But Jesus' attentive presence was not left behind on them. And hear me carefully, the dimensions of time and space, so confining to us, so restrictive to us in our finitude, are not barriers at all or obstacles for Jesus. John will tell us later in the gospel, I think, this is my hunch, okay, hunch level. John will tell us later in the gospel (laughs) that Jesus, after his resurrection, his resurrected body didn't go through the door, he walked through the wall. See, no matter where we are, what fears we're facing, Jesus is with us. I want us to reflect on two heartfelt questions this morning. I'd like you to, if you're going through the journal and being part of Form.life, I know many, many people across our church family and our campuses are doing this. I hear this often. But I encourage you, to, if you are, to write these two questions down, okay? Or put a note on This week, first, briefly, what are, where are you ex- not expecting Jesus to show up in your life? All too often we think we expect Jesus to show up and come to us when we are the gather church for corporate worship. And let me say that's a rightful and hopeful expectation. Pray for that. One of the main ways God is present to us and through is through other believers that gather together in his name on Sunday. That is important. But it is so easy, isn't it, in our busy and messy Monday worlds to not expect Jesus to show up there. We may think that in those messy places of our fear, our shame, our brokenness, in those places of temptation, of hurt, doubt, discouragement, and cynicism, Jesus doesn't want to go there. But that is where Jesus hangs out. The gospel writers describe Jesus in the most messy places of people's lives. He stays right there. In brokenness, fear, whatever. And not only does Jesus show up in the hard places, he will not turn his back on you or leave the room on you when things get messy and difficult. I think we struggle, don't we, to believe Jesus will show up in our struggling marriage or in the life of our child or grandchild, a strained family relationship or friendship or in our financial need or mental or physical or health needs. And somehow he's not greater than the evil one. Greater is he that's in the world. Greater is he that is he in the world. We may not even imagine It'd be possible for Jesus to show up in our Monday workplace where you may have to make a very difficult business decision or have a very hard conversation with an employee or a boss or colleague. But these are the very places Jesus wants to show up and be attentive to you. Last question, briefly. Where do you need to look for Jesus this week? This week, will you be more attentive to Jesus' presence? He longs to show up in your Monday worlds where you live, work, and play. Imagine with me for just a moment. What is that unexpected place or person 
where you long for Jesus to show up this week. By bringing his tender healing presence, his comforting protection, his wise guidance, his abundant provision. See, this text reminds us when we belong to Jesus, he'll be there for us. He will never abandon us, neither will he let us go. Fascinating, John chapter 6, verse 37, you see this little connection when Jesus says, whoever the Father gives me, I will never cast out. Wow. Jesus came to earth. He confirmed who he was by his miraculous signs. He laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. He rose from the dead, defeating death for all times. He ascended to heaven, and one day he'll return to set things right. And this Jesus wants to forgive you and me and to give us new life. As our very intimate Lord and Savior. Have you embraced him by faith? Many of you I know have. And will you experience Jesus as your good shepherd who not only has your back, who's not only with you, who's before you, who's always attentive to you? Let me remind you that Jesus is your good shepherd. He is always there with you and he will always be for you. King David captures this in that great poem written called Psalm 23. Notice David says, even though I walk through the darkest of valleys, some translations say death is the darkest times. Even in that valley, even in the shadow of death itself, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? For you are with me. Even in our darkest valleys, Jesus is with us. Even in your worst fears, Jesus is with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our good shepherd, you are always with us. Make that truth so real to each one of our lives. And may your perfect love and intimacy cast out all fear. In Jesus' name.